1: For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Severin. This is
2: Greenhorns Radio. Radio for farmers. Sometimes getting some gray hairs these days. Uh, I'm I'm here in San Francisco reporting live on many topics. Um, joined by my friend in Indiana. Hi, how's it going?
3: Hey Severin, how are you?
2: I'm doing good. I'm on a, I'm on my bicycle. I got the Currently. time change wrong again, but it's okay. Tell us what's going on in Indiana these days. What's your weather like there?
3: Well, that is a very uh, pertinent question today. It was snowing most of the day, but fortunately no accumulation. So today was meant to be a pretty significant planting day, but that has gotten a little bit delayed. So it's cold. It's really cold, windy. It's not a great day. How about Um, in San Francisco? let's,
2: Let's talk a little bit about Indiana, the state. Mm -hmm. Um, the agricultural history and settlement patterns that you're dealing with there. Set a little bit of the context for where you are in the world, if you wouldn't mind.
3: Yeah, so I'll do the best I can, right? I'm not uh, sort of a native agriculturalist or a native Hoosier, so I'll try the best that I can. Um, So I guess where we find ourselves in Indiana is sort of an agricultural state, that oftentimes, particularly in the city centers, where which is where I live in Indianapolis, doesn't always feel as such. Um, so there's a lot of agriculture sort of happening around, but very traditional, of course, right, sort of large commodity agriculture. And so I guess we're sort of thinking at, about it as this sort of open or sort of a blank slate, right, that we have all of these opportunities to sort of recreate new agriculture. And it feels, and this is part of the reason why my wife Laura and I sort of, pretty committed to this place is there is great possibility because there's just not a lot of sort of progressive stuff happening or hasn't been happening. Uh, We've been back in the U.S. for probably six years, and let's say in the last three, things have sort of started to happen a bit at warp speed, and that feels really encouraging. Um, And through sort of involvement in Slow Food and some other organizations, it feels like this sort of movement in agriculture, and I guess you're a in San Francisco at the moment, and I know that you spend a lot of time in New England. It sort of needs to move away from the coasts and into the middle, and I I hope that Indiana can be a leader in that.
2: Well, and I think that it's um, very apparent to me as I'm traveling around, and you know, obviously, it's so groovy to be in Brooklyn and so groovy to be in the Mission and. Those are the places that are closest to the mass media portals and the humans who don't leave very far from their computer tether to do reporting. But in fact, in all the smaller cities across the country, as you're pointing out, stuff is going down and actually oftentimes it's a lot easier to get things started because it's just so much more approachable um, on a bit of a smaller scale. The humans who sit in the offices who make decisions about what can happen... um, What's been your experience in, you know, activating the systems that you guys are doing? Uh, like maybe go through the sequence of how you started and what I mean, what order you've been approaching those projects, and then you know, maybe what the response has been by the city and kind of other entities that you interact with.
3: Sure. Yeah, I'll try to give a fairly efficient backdrop because it's a bit of a kind of circuitous story. But um, Laura, who I'll, I'll probably use the term "we" a lot in this conversation because. Uh, we're, you know, married, we do a lot of this work together. So we moved back to the states from Europe in 2006 or 2007. Um, and sort of, you know, for a few reasons, but somewhat coincidentally, we sort of end up, ended up back in Indianapolis and uh, became those very annoying people sort of moving back from abroad complaining that it's not as cool or interesting as where we had been. Um, and I think to the annoyance of most people around us. So we sort of gave ourselves six months to either leave and go somewhere cooler and you know probably the, some of the places that you just mentioned or start to activate interesting things that we felt like we wanted to see here in Indianapolis and that we thought would be for the you know the greater good so we first started the Indy Winter Farmers Market because that was born out of friendships and relationships with farmers who were wanting more opportunities to sell year round more farmers markets which were grower producer only which are quite a rarity here in Indianapolis. Uh, and I remember very distinctly you know, going to sleep the night before the first market and looking at each other and saying, are people actually going to turn up? Like we hadn't even considered that, right? We sort of organized the farmers and organized the space. And the next morning, people are just rolling in, you know, in droves. And we thought, oh, wow, okay, this is quite interesting. And that turned into – our little thing, you know, we sort of ran the Indy Winter Farmers Market, and then a, a year after that we were offered a personal garden in a, what would be Indianapolis's equivalent of Central Park. It's called White River State Park. And we thought that was quite a strange place to have our own personal garden, and so Laura came up with the idea of running an urban agriculture internship program and sort of spun this thing off called, or created this, I guess now, nonprofit organization called Growing Places Indy. Um, And what we realized pretty quickly that first year was there was a really small market for training in urban farming, sort of the actual kind of mechanics of farming. So not a ton of interest in that. We attracted kind of young people that were looking for a summer job, but not aspiring farmers. And so after that subsequently, and I guess we're now in our fifth year, we turned it into more of a food systems apprenticeship. So we do a lot of farming, and I can get into – sort of what the farming looks like with us. But a lot of sort of introducing people to food entrepreneurship, social change through, um, through food, environmental sustainability related to agriculture, and it has been incredible. I mean, the response in this city to what we're doing is, in many ways, I feel like we couldn't do it anywhere else. Um, yeah, so it feels very encouraging, and alongside of us there's a lot of other of agriculture initiatives that are springing up in the last five years, both in the city and, let's say, in the peri-urban area. And it feels so it feels to me, I travel, I have a, another job where I travel all over the world to some of the biggest, let's say, foodie places, and I feel like I eat better here than I eat anywhere else in the world. I feel like our, our agricultural system is getting that good.
2: Yeah, dude. Hometown pride.
3: <laughs> Home not actually hometown but I, I'm proudly adopting this place for sure
2: proudly adopting uh proudly proudly protagonizing
3: in your place <laughs> or maybe it's proudly or unproudly adopting me
2: so so let's talk a little bit about the relationship um you're talking about kind of other things that are going on, and again you know we're talking kind of about the social logistics of, of change and as social entrepreneurs and people who are, you know, building infrastructures, human and relational infrastructures to hold good work, um, I feel like you probably have some strong insight about the way to collaborate in a, in a small city and how those collaborations can bear fruit. Maybe a little bit of being a bit didactic about that for those yeah. who are coming along in your footsteps, maybe in another, in another small city somewhere that hasn't yet been awakened.
3: In this way yeah so maybe. yeah so i guess maybe lessons learned i think let's say a couple things now kind of looking back on a short history but some history that i think have been pretty good lessons which i really think i, I meet a lot of young people who are interested in sort of entrepreneurship and they are just i think it, the idea of it is a bit of a fantasy um and i what i tell people constantly is figure out what you're and this is no great <laughs> insight, but it's, it's true. So to figure out what you, how you want to spend your time, what you're interested in, and do that, and people will or won't follow along, but at least you're sort of following your passion. So I think what worked best for us is we were sort of, in many ways, sort of selfishly doing what we wanted to see done. And as it turned out, there was a need for that, and as it turned out, sort of people got behind it. But we didn't have any expectation sort of going in, right? We just thought it would be interesting to have some urban farming happening and have a, a winter market. Um, and in a place like Indianapolis, where, again, sort of change needs to happen, um, let’s say interest and then subsequently, which is a ne- necessary part of it as well, sort of money will follow. Um, so we came into a few really key partnerships, um, which I can talk about. One is the uh, Chase Near East Side Legacy Center, which is I'm, I'm in an office here that's where I'm speaking to you from. And this was a community center built with Chase Bank money and Super Bowl money. It was a result of the Super Bowl being in Indianapolis. And they sort of valued uh, agriculture being in this place. And because we had been working in agriculture, working in the area of the city called the Near East Side, we were asked to sort of come on and be the agricultural partners. And that sort of legitimizes it, right? I mean, when you're sort of small social entrepreneurs, no one really knows who you are, right? You're just sort of these young people trying to do good, and we sort of connected with one key institution, and that led to a relationship with the public hospital system, uh, the public health system called Eskenazi Health. Um, so now we're operating a farm on the rooftop of this new hospital. Um, so I think moving from these ideas that were existing in our house and in these small little ways to sort of developing known partnerships, was that was the change for us.
2: Uh, wow. I mean, I can't believe it took us so long to get to the fact that you're running a, a rooftop farm on a hospital. That is like, <laughs> Maybe I should, that is, yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> this That's is an amazing. amazing. Yeah. So I'll tell, you, I'll tell you sort of where we farm, because I know this is a bit of a farming podcast. So we farm on now about three-quarters of an acre. Um, so one is this White River State Park site that I mentioned, which is a very public, you know, it's kind of the most – pedestrian area in the city and so we in many ways think of ourselves as this billboard for sustainable agriculture because people i always say it gives people the opportunity for accidental interactions with agriculture you don't have to find it we're not hidden away uh then we're on a residential site on the near east side we're at this center i mentioned the chase near east side legacy center which our big project this year is we're creating a diversified urban UPIC, pick which um as we've sort of been working in this part of town we've just seen the Propensity for people to eat better food rises significantly, even if they have a little role in the agricultural process. So we're in lieu of doing, you know, your traditional strawberry or pumpkin patch U we're doing this crazy diversified U and that was funded by the USDA, a grant from the USDA. But then this final piece, which is called the Sky Farm at Eskenazi Hospital, um, and that's our public hospital in, in Marion County, which is the county that Indianapolis resides within. Um, and this was really uh, amazing leadership by the CEO of the hospital, Lisa Harris and the CEO of the health system called his name's Matt Gutwine. and basically they're thinking really seriously that you know as a public health institution, the more they can invest in prevention, obviously the more they save money at the back end of course um, so the there's a new hospital in, that has just recently opened in the last couple of months and in the plan is a large I, probably 6,000 square foot, sort of rooftop farm. Um, so we were given the sort of contract to operate that farm and now have someone with probably the coolest title that you could have. She's a, she's called the Sky Farmer, um, and she works up there, and she's growing food specifically for the hospital, so both food and flowers that sort of stay within the hospital. And, again, when they're thinking about sort of health, you know, people coming to the hospital either for you know, for, for many reasons, they both have a place um, where they, they can be eating food that's grown there at the hospital, uh, but they can also sort of interact with agriculture and sort of think about, the hopefully think about the role that it plays in their life. So I, I can't give, if you're going to, if the next questions are going to ask about the mechanics of growing on a roof, we haven't, we're, we're just entering our first season, so I won't be able to give you any lessons yet. <laughs> that will be a conversation in a couple years.
2: Yeah, I mean, I just can't wait to sit on as an moderator on a panel of rooftop farmers and hear you guys moan and groan about all your, all the the forces of the wind and the weird growing medium and how to, how to keep birds from nesting. And I mean, I'm very intrigued by the mechanics. But we're gonna go there next time.
3: Yeah, though I have, uh, Uh, fortunately I've been through my other work. I travel a lot, and I've been to a lot of those rooftop farms in Brooklyn. So we definitely got some lessons. And the huge benefit was that for us is that it wasn't a retrofitted building. So we got to choose the soil mix. Um, Mm -hmm. So we're not going to be battling the same sort of, uh, probably the same sort of fertility and sort of growing meeting issues as some of those other farms. Mm -hmm. Fingers crossed, of course.
2: Awesome. Evolution seems to work.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Right on. So, so... What are the unique What are the unique factors uh, in terms of Indiana, in terms of, or in terms of your city uh, that that are allowing people to tune in and make these connections? And but it almost seems uncontroversial and easy as easy as pie what you're doing. And I I want to kind of understand again a little bit deeper, like. Why Why is it working so well, and what are the, what is the language that you're using when you're talking with people um, that allows them to hear the truth and beauty of what you're proposing?
3: Yeah, okay, so I'm going to have to think through this on the fly. That's maybe a question that I haven't completely considered, so I'm, these are going to be, uh, yeah, I'm going to go for it. So I think one of the pieces is that there, there seems to be some sort of, you know, the, the, the nickname is sort of Hoosier. So there seems to be some sort of Hoosier identity or Hoosier pride, but it's very light, right? It's, it's, and it's very ambiguous. So Laura, my wife, is from Louisville. And there's definitely a very robust sort of identity and pride with being in and from Louisville. Um, and there's historically what I've witnessed, being an outsider to this place, but now here for some years, is a little bit of kind of embarrassment or shyness about being from Indianapolis. And I think largely um, because it sort of it doesn't drum up any image, right? Um, if you think of some, if you think of Indianapolis or some identity with it, I mean, people have a hard time thinking of anything. Maybe they think of the Indianapolis 500 or something like this. So I'm not. I don't want to imply it has been sort of easy peasy all the way along. But it hasn't. It also hasn't been all that difficult to get all of these things started. And I think because there's been a bit of a desperation, but I say desperation not in a negative way, a desperation for good things to happen, right, for good possibilities. And part of that, and this is, comes from the city as well, is there's so much land in this place that is just not used at all. I mean, completely unused. So the mayor, for example, made... 200 or more vacant lots available for any agricultural initiative for free um, just to try to stimulate some, something, right? They could be community gardens. They could be for-profit farms. There was no real limitations around that. Um, So I, I guess maybe the root of it is this realization that for, to retain people, to attract people, we have to build on an identity off of something. Now, my hope is that something is Farming—that something is food, uh, environmentalism, sustainability, that sort of thing. I don't know that you know if you ask sort of city leaders if they would agree with that last piece. But that feels to me that that's the movement. That's the the yeah the movement is in that direction.
2: And okay, so when the mayor made all this 200 acres
3: available, how did that go down? Yeah, not well. Although we certainly have 200 acres.
2: Uh, How did that go down, and and who were some of the other players who were uh, also stepping into that challenge? Like your scene, that kind of scene that you were alluding to earlier.
3: Yeah, so that program, though I I did mention it, didn't seem to be a great success, and I think it may have been launched a little bit before its time. It would be interesting to see if it was launched now to see how many lots were picked up. Um, From what I understand, there were several lots, many lots, that have picked up for um, community gardens, right? Um, and a couple people that were doing sort of semi-production agriculture. The, I think one of the problems was some of these lots were sort of clustered in an area of town that's a little bit inconvenient. So, um, and then, of course, with you know, infrastructure related to farming, there's you know, water and all of these kind of challenges that go along with it. Um, so that, let's say that program itself was a mild success. But what's been sort of, let's say, continuing to go on or sort of outside of that has been the rise of urban agriculture because when we arrived here in two thousand six there wasn't as far as i can tell nothing going on i mean truly nothing Um, so subsequently of course there's us growing places indeed there's a two acre uh... two for-profit farms in the city that are production oriented south circle farm and big city farms uh... butler university so maybe people know that name because of their basketball team but it's a university here in the city center of indianapolis they in the last couple of years have started a campus farm, which has not been seen in Indianapolis. Another local university, IUPUI, started a, a campus garden. Uh, the Indy Parks Foundation, which is, well, maybe the, the word describes it, started a, gosh, it's probably three acres, a uh, grant-funded farm that um, grows food that is distributed to uh, food pantries. Um, these are just the things off the top of my head. So we're probably now approaching, I mean, certainly more than a dozen acres of production farming in the city, which I know when we're talking about (laughs) kind of external farming outside of the city is nothing, but these are places that are producing a heck of a lot of food. And what I like is they're sort of fitting different models, right? We've got these sort of, you know, for-profit or attempting to be for-profit production-oriented farms that are market gardens. We've got education, you know, ones housed within educational institutions. There's us, which we have a sort of a Production side, but we also have an educational side. So it it feels that we can sort of fit a few different agricultural models within the same city and have them all work.
2: Well, and I like what I'm hearing in terms of playing nicely together between the for-profit and nonprofit sectors, and and that the sounds like nonprofit work you guys are doing is is enabling and supporting the founding of these production, or, you know, small businesses that are at least part of a livelihood for someone.
3: Yeah, and I don't see any reason not to play nicely, right? I mean, it feels to me relative to sort of this farming, this new agricultural and food landscape that we're trying to create there is just abundance everywhere. I don't, you know, the, the idea that there are sort of limited resources is just completely lost on me. I think <laughs> we, we do better together, and that is certainly something we're... I mean that's a model that exists here for sure.
2: So, what's next? What's next in terms of challenge? What are you going to take on? Obviously, this new sky farm—you have to figure out if anything will yep. grow into the sky. Yeah, yeah. But what well, are you farming... guys? What are you guys? What are you thinking about confronting as your next uh, phase?
3: Yeah. So let's say there—it's twofold. One's one side's the farming side, and the and the other side's the educational side. So maybe I'll say a few words about both so on the farming side right we're, we're figuring out how the mechanics of this sky farm and how that's going to work and what uh, crops work well for the hospital and yeah all the mechanics of that um, this urban U pick to see if there's actually legs behind it i mean this was just an idea i came up with that people would find a groovy diversified U pick as a fun activity and a good way to get more affordable food we'll see right That we're gonna we'll be testing that out this year uh, we're we started doing microgreens about a year ago, a year and a half ago, and that has completely taken off. So we're, we're getting a little bit more diversified on, on that side, sort of trying new crops. And on the, on the educational side, that's a, we, we, I guess we haven't really mentioned that, but we run a 10-week, I mentioned this, sort of summer apprenticeship program. And I think it's a good experience. People are definitely learning. They're getting connected. They're getting a network. They're learning how to, to grow food, et cetera. And it feels to me the next phase for that is how do we – help move those people into actual jobs post-apprenticeship, right? Is there a possibility either locally, regionally, or nationally to help sort of trained food system people uh, into actual jobs? Now, this gets to the issue relative to this work that we're all doing, which is there's actually not a whole lot of jobs. <laughs> so maybe there's a chicken and an egg conversation there. Um, but that, that sort of feels on um, the education side is how do we sort of feed people more efficiently into the market to either be their their own sort of social entrepreneurs or into existing positions.
2: Or be going to existing positions for a few seasons, build up their business plan, save up some money, get snow tires, and then start their business.
3: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, man. That's awesome. And it's really exciting to hear about this new pick because obviously baby greens are the is the way to cash flow a small urban ag operation, and that's clear. But there's really cool new models popping up with these community orchards and more of a you know open approach, like low input, uh, low input labor from outside engagement. That that feels really like a really appropriate format for your goal. Yeah,
3: so, I'm so excited for it to go. I mean, we are, you know. If, we have all of these distribution channels, right? So if people don't come and pick it, we have a farm stand at the same location. If the farm stand is, is not very well frequented, we have farmers markets we can go to, or we can sell to restaurants, like that, or we can give it away to, you know, a food pantry. Like there's all of these distribution um, opportunities, and because it's grant funded, this year we don't have to be so concerned with the income that it's generating, right? We have this sort of year to sort of flex, get the get the soil where we want it, kind of see what we can do relative to production. And that's what we attempt to do with all of our farming operations and our farming staff, that they are um, self uh, – they, they cover their costs, right? So we're to the point now that our farm sort of covers my salary, covers the rest of our farming staff, and feeds a little money back to the nonprofit. And that feels like a huge um, win. <laughs> so we're, we're not pulling any resources from the nonprofit.
2: We're winning, Well, I really appreciate your time on the air. I'm going to give you a second to think about if you have any announcements you want to make, and I'm going to make an announcement, um, which is that this coming week is on April 4th and 5th in Ellie, Minnesota, is the Young Farmers Congress. It's a gathering coordinated by Lindsay over at Moses, which is the Midwest Organic Organic and Sustainable Education Service, I
3: think you got which it. is
2: one of the largest organizations for sustainable ag, a regional organic organization. They have a great winter conference. This is a summer, this is a spring conference for specifically beginning and newly entering farmers. Two-day campout weekend, um, I'm going to be there. Anne-Marie from Agrarian Trust is going to be there. Sophie Akhoff from Nationally and Farmers. Rachel uh, from Farm Commons kind of like a whole tribe of us young agrarian activists and advocates, uh, facilitating discussions, talking about land access, drinking beer, all those kinds of things. You can learn more on the Moses website. Uh, Look up Young Organic Stewards Program, or you can find it on the events calendar of Greenhorns, which is, of course, your go-to place for fun farm happenings and inspiration for organizing your own fun farm happenings. Uh, the other call-out is the, our upcoming symposium on land access and land reform here at Berkeley, uh, UC Berkeley and the Brower Center on April 26th and 27th. That's, like, the biggest event for me in the world right now. Um, pretty much an incredible lineup of all my favorite elders in this space, talking about political economy, talking about the global context, commodification, enclosure, land loss, dispossession, Opportunity, partnerships equity, the whole range. I hope that if you don't come, that you sign up for the Agrarian Trust mailing list and download the podcast, um, which we're going to have made. Thank you very much to our sponsors, uh, Chelsea Green, Roots of Change, Brower Center, Berkeley Food Institute, and California FindLink. Uh Okay, that was a long announcement. Are you ready for anything, Tyler?
3: One thing, Severin, our apprenticeship application is due on April 4th, so your listeners out, out there who have 10 weeks available this summer thinking about sort of urban farming or food systems. We give, we have a, give a little stipend, share vegetables, free yoga, bike around the city, learn this place, and then I'm going to hope that we hang out somewhere, maybe in maybe upstate New York, or I can convince you to come to Indianapolis so I can show you what's going on here.
2: Yeah, well, you're welcome. Come by anytime in Essex, New York, and um, I'm going to be through there and sometime going to visit those guys in uh, Ohio, which isn't too far from you. We're going to go visit the Shagbark Cooperative. So, uh,
3: yes, yeah, let's do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I grew up in Ohio, so this, this is a possibility.
2: Good, pe- good people. So, um, everybody, move to Indianapolis. Talk to Tyler. <laughs> Apply today. Talk to you next week. Thank you.
3: Thanks, everyone.
1: Jason, looks like I gotta get Severn back on the line, so give me one second. Can you hear me, Jason?
2: I can hear you fine. Okay,
1: great. Let me just try to get Severn on the line.